For the week of January 30th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, a Sundance Special Edition, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world in Los Angeles. I'm Jay Sperling-Reich, and joining me is not Michael Giltz, but Stephen Garrett. And uh, Stephen, I guess you do two things. One, you are the founder and head of a marketing company that markets uh, specialty films, like independent films. Is is that's another word for independent films? That's right. Uh, and you also are a contributor to the Book and Film Globe and and other uh, media outlets. So, Stephen, correct. thank you for joining. Thank us. you, thank you for having me. Now, the reason that that uh, now we, uh, you know, full disclosure, you and I have known each other for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, lo- longer than I've known uh, some people have probably, you're probably one of my, my, uh, now that I think about it, <laughs> it's been, I think the years, uh, began with a one and a nine. When That's we first true. Met. I think in the last century we met. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which makes us sound very old. We are. Uh, but, but we have been going to Cannes now for umpteen years, actually over 20 some odd years. Yep. Uh, and we, we bunk together, room together there. Uh, and I guess my, my question would be, you go to these festivals for two reasons. One, you're contributing to, uh, to, you know, book and film globe or the observer or whoever you're writing for, but you're also looking for films that you will, you may work on in the future. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I like writing about films. I started out as a journalist when I was also learning how to cut trailers and I didn't want to give up either one. Uh, so, um, and I love going to film festivals, so I found the two kind of dovetailed nicely. I could um, watch a lot of movies, I could write about them, I could talk about them, and once they were picked up by distributors, I could reach out if there was a movie that I really liked and um, offer my services. And hopefully it would work out that um, one of these companies might hire us to uh, do the marketing for it. So it was a lovely way for me to promote a film two different ways. I could write about it and tell people about it, and then. Um, at times, I could also cut the trailer for it. I very rarely have written about a movie that I've cut the trailer for. I try to avoid that in terms of conflict of interest. And certainly, once I'm hired to cut a trailer, I don't write about it. Um, but, um, but but now you have a whole team. If somebody else cut the trailer for a, a movie inside Jump Cut, would you still then write about oh, it? Or no is way. that still off? No, no, no. Once the company is hired to cut a trailer for a movie or do a poster for the movie, then I don't write about it. Well, now, when we spoke uh, right before uh, Sundance announced that it was going all in on uh, all virtual, uh, and you were actually going to head up there yeah. and and to Park City, Utah, where this arguably one of the of North America's largest film festivals, m- more important film festivals each year, um, and you were going to go. I was going to stay back and cover it virtually. Uh, and so that didn't work out, no. but, uh, <laughs> we all went virtually and, and you went up, uh, you, why don't you tell people how you, how you cover this festival, uh, virtually? Oh, well, uh, I, I did this last year too, um, that I, uh, share a condo at Sundance with a bunch of guys. We've been sharing a condo for many, many years at this point. And, um, so last year, when we were all going to go virtual, uh, I thought to myself, geez, well, why don't we just rent a condo upstate in New York and we'll just bring a projector and we'll have our little condo experience up there. Uh, and for various reasons, uh, we couldn't get everybody, but there was one person who definitely was all in. And so he and I went up and we had a fantastic time last year, um, rented a place for about a week. And um, it actually was a converted uh, church. 
So it was basically a loft style space, but the the main room of it is the church. And so where a pew and a and a cross would be, that's where we projected the movies. It was very apt as well. And then we slept upstairs where the pews would, would be, where the choir would sing. That's where they had beds. So it was great. It was really charming. <laughs> we found the we got the same place this year. That's what we were doing. And so, okay, so then you started watching movies. What did you see that that really stood out? How, first of all, how many movies did you see? I, I am at least at somewhere around 30, maybe more, and I still have a few to go. Yeah, I, I think I topped out at 38, um, although I have a, another like 12 films that I could potentially see because I got links. Um, but yeah, of those 38, I will cop to fast forwarding through six of them because I was like, I get it. I'm not into this. I got better things to do. I want to see how it ends. Skip, 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 skip. <laughs> Which is really easy to do when it's on a website. Let me tell you. These would be movies that I would otherwise have not seen because of logistical reasons or I would have walked out of because, you know, time is precious during an actual in-person, like, in-real-life festival. Right. And, and I have to admit, I, I rarely, if ever, walk out of a film. Uh, and uh, I think, actually, you have convinced me to do that on more than one occasion. Like you have said, like, let's get out of here. Let's go to La Pizza. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, you've watched me walk out of a lot of movies. Uh, yeah. Maybe not a lot, but, you know, like, yeah, I'll give it. I had a friend who would give a movie two reels, you know, back when films were broken into reels. And that means 40 minutes because each reel is 20 minutes. You give it two reels. And if by the second reel, he's not really into it, he'd take off. This was back when there was a changeover reel in the upper corner, if you remember. And you could actually see. You wouldn't have to look at your watch. You'd be like, yep, that's two reels. Okay, I'm leaving. (laughs) Cigarette burn marks in the upper right-hand corner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, what what did you... uh, I don't know how you want to do this. What did you see that you really like that you think people should know about? Well, okay. I mean, Sundance always breaks down into, as most festivals, they have... uh, Big crowd-pleasing movies with stars and celebrities, and those tend to get the attention and the headlines and the big uh, money deals. And then there are um, increasingly more art house titles that are pretty hardcore, cineast uh, appealing, and um, and have a, a smaller, smaller um, pool of interest among regular viewers. So Sundance always has that. They had this year. Um, the big deals went to splashy movies like Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which sold for, I think, $15 million to Apple. Um, the two movies that sold, actually, were the ones that Dakota Johnson, um, you know, movie star Dakota Johnson, Hollywood royalty Dakota Johnson, also produced. And they're also uh, good movies. I mean, and not the types of movies that are generally made anymore, certainly by the studios. One was called Cha-Cha Real Smooth by, um, gosh, what is the name of that guy? Do you remember this guy? Um, I'm gonna look it up real fast. Cooper Cooper Rafe. I don't know if you saw it. You Cooper, yeah, Cooper Rafe, and he he did a film that won the the South by Southwest Film Festival a couple of years ago, uh, named uh, Shit House, which you know a, a a the name of a film you can't say on air. Uh, but uh, that said, now he's got a another film, Cha Cha Real Smooth. It was a very endearing film. I watched it with my uh my my teenage daughter oh that's kind of nice actually that is the one thing that a virtual sundown dance allows it allows you to do something like that that's true uh and she liked it well and it's you know it's a story that the guy uh cooper actually who wrote directed uh and stars in it and edited it and is like 24 which is insane uh the guy is amazingly talented very charismatic clearly self-confident um 
plays a uh, a DJ, a bar mitzvah DJ, right? Like he's a party starter at uh, bar mitzvahs. So there are a lot of teenage characters. Actually, it's a very apt movie to watch with uh, your teenage daughter. Um, no, but it's a very, like you're saying, it's very endearing. It's very, very cute and sweet. Um, makes total sense that it got picked up. It's a very watchable sort of movie. Uh, rom-com. Um, and Dakota Johnson plays this uh, single mom, uh, older woman, and he's kind of crushing on her hard and, you know, uh, hilarity ensues and also poignancy. The other one that I really liked was also uh, Dakota Johnson starring and producing um, called Am I Okay, which is about um, a woman played by Dakota Johnson who was uh, 32 years old and kind of late life, um, not late life, but late blooming uh, sexuality. She kind of realizes that she might be a lesbian. And so she, she kind of tiptoes into uh, that experience and that self-realization. It's very, it's very lovely. It's very wise and very funny. And Tignataro and her partner, Stephanie Aline, um, Stephanie Lane. Yeah, yeah they yeah. Uh, directed it. I think they wrote it together as well. Um, it's very funny, but it's also very knowing, and uh, it's it's lovely to see that kind of movie uh, be made and be picked up. That Warner Brothers and HBO Max picked that up for about seven million dollars, something around there. Um, so those are the big splashy ones that people will probably see or hear about over the next year. Um, the uh, one of the most impactful. And, and we, yeah, we, we should point out. Cha-Cha Real Smooth won the audience award. Oh, right. Sorry. Yes, so, that's right. Yeah, that's right. As did Coda last year, as did a lot of other movies. I'm sure like Little Miss Sunshine got the audience award. So it's, it speaks to how much this will probably be embraced by, by uh, certainly well-liked by those who watch it. Um, but uh, in terms of documentaries, strong year, as always, for documentaries. I loved, uh, I don't know if you saw Fire of Love that first night. Uh, that opened the festival. Fire of Love is about uh, the the uh, volcanologists. Uh, right. Who, no, no, no spoiler alert here. They, you know, everybody knows they they die. Uh, but uh, it, it's just stunning to look at it. it. It contains all their footage. Well, they shot this footage. Yeah, that um, they shot in the sixties and seventies, and it's this uh, husband wife uh, French, um, uh, like you're saying, volcanologist. Totally adorable, hilarious, very quirky. I mean. It's like watching a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, those guys, especially their equipment, their 60s, 70s equipment, their 60s, 70s French vibe. They die doing what they love. They died during a volcano eruption. That was fascinating and, um, and really wonderful. And like you're saying, the footage is absolutely compelling. Um, you know, uh, also that first night, the, there was a documentary called The Princess about Lady Diane and um, the life and death of, or at least certainly her life from when she became Princess Diana up through. Um, when she died uh, in uh, Paris, being chased by paparazzi. And it's interesting, it's very much like Fire of Love, um, a sort of found footage documentary. It's these guys put together existing footage, have no talking heads, have no commentary. Actually, Fire of Love has that narration by Miranda July, but The Princess is just pure, like, this is just video footage. Um, some of it, you know, was aired on TV. Some of it is just you know, news footage that was shot behind the scenes but that didn't get aired, and you kind of hear people passing judgment on on uh, Diana. I, I I I got more than enough on Diana to last a lifetime. I couldn't care less. But somebody said, "No, you really should watch that," and I was glad I did. It was really smart about complicity in the media, complicity of the tabloids, complicity of us, the audience that consumes it. Um, it's really interesting and, and certainly very So, So uh, in other words, it's a, it's a Princess Diana documentary told in a, what makes it compelling and the reason you should see, because certainly like you, I saw it, I was like, yeah, no, I don't even know why you program a film on Princess Diana, frankly. Uh, and so I, I said no to that. And of course now you're saying, well, yeah, but 
it's told in a completely different way. Yeah, well, or I wouldn't say completely different, but in a very considered way. I mean, you see all the greatest hits. You see the wedding. You see the you know the the, the books that come out, that report of bulimia and the affairs and all that kind of stuff. But I, I don't know, just seeing it packaged in the way that it is, you realize the kind of damage, the slow drip damage that was done to that woman, and um, and how corrosive it is to those who kind of are, are automatically complicit because you're interested in reading about it or allow yourself to constantly consume it. So it's pretty good. The, the grand prize, uh, grand jury prize, I should say, for documentary went to a film called The Exiles, which is about um, Christine Choi. Who's, Christine, Christine Choi is, was a former teacher of mine at NYU. Oh, is that right? I was about to say, yeah. So chain yeah. smoking, hard talking, hard drinking. Yeah. Salty. She's a character. She always said to me, like, why do you want to make that movie? Why? Yeah. yeah it sounds <laughs> like her like, from oh, the movie, okay. for sure. <laughs> I was like, so you're saying no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, as I was watching it, I was like, not that charmed. Like, after a while, I was like, she's just irritating. But I guess people like that, so there you go. Um, but uh, it follows, it's like a documentary about a documentary that she started making and then abandoned, uh, I think she ran out of money, um, about the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, how she interviewed the political dissidents back then. Um, then she ran out of money, and there's like 30 reels of film that they went back and revisited, and she went back and revisited the people she interviewed. And it's actually kind of an interesting kind of rumination on memory and legacy and, um, and also how the Chinese government has completely erased any sort, of, um, uh, any sort of reports of the massacre at all. So you have a generation of Chinese who've grown up having no idea that this actually happened. So um, kind of chilling. Yeah, what's weird is, so my, my uh, oldest daughter goes to a school where there's at least 20 Chinese exchange students. And what I want to know is, okay, well, what happens when they go home and they go, wait, where's that thing about Tiananmen that we learned? And, and you know, she said, do you think they're even curious about She just, they don't care about that. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of sad and a little chilling and very depressing. You know, they, the one that was actually the other p- big political documentary that played, it was a s- surprise screening, the one about Navalny, Alexei Navalny, that um, was announced the day before it played. And that ended up getting the audience award for best documentary. Um, but uh, it's a documentary and best about, of fest, basically. And best it also of fest. won best festival, yeah. festival favorite award. Yeah, and that um, I thought was actually a very much like a fly in the wall. You are there, sort of um, uh, account of Navalny, who was poisoned by Putin, and uh, and then with an investigative reporter found the people who poisoned him and got them to confess it <laughs> over the telephone, and it's kind of jaw dropping. Um, and then at the end, you see him go back to Russia and end up jailed. Uh, and that's where he is now. Um, so it's very literally go back. You literally see him go back on the plane. They're on the plane with, I mean, like you're absolutely correct. I was, I thought, okay, I'll watch this thing because of course it won. And I had an extra tip. I was like, fine, I'm going to watch it. And then I was, I was blown away. Daniel Rohr directs this movie and he, he actually says, oh, this guy's making this movie in case I get whacked. Right. You know, it'll, it'll be my, my, you know, from the grave documentary. But they were with him the whole time, including as they were like, well, how do we get them to confess? Do we just call them and like, 
to say, hey, this is Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in, in, from Russia, but I'm calling from Germany where I'm recovering from being poisoned. Yeah. Why'd you poison me? And that didn't work, by the way. Th those people were like, oh, I'm hanging up now. Right. But then he pretended to be like, yeah, I mean, everybody knows the story because it was in the news. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think that speaks to the filmmaking too. Is, uh, you know, I, I went into it knowing a fair amount that I just read in accounts over the past year and a half, which is when it all took place. Um, and yet it was still really riveting, knowing what would happen, knowing that it did happen and knowing what would happen, you know. Um, so kudos to that film. That was that was pretty great. There were a lot of climate change stories. I don't know if you saw Utama that got the world I did. cinema I, I, prize for dramatic. Utama was directed by, uh, yeah, grand, grand Jury Prize for the world dramatic. Uh, it was directed by Alejandro Loiza Grisi, and I apologize wow, up front for impressive. probably mispronouncing your name. That. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I watched this movie and thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give this a chance because it was the, the one Latin American film I had yet to see. I saw it uh, right as it premiered. I liked it. I could see people hating it because it's a very slow movie yeah. with beautifully shot, beautifully shot. It's like one photograph after another, but it is about, there's like three people in the movie and yet somehow it managed to work for me because it's not about climate change. Climate change is just a character in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's very much a, like a story of, uh, you know, a, a generation dying out, literally dying out in somewhere in South America. I want to say Peru or something. I don't know. They have a Bolivia. 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 Yeah. They got a bunch of, uh, it's a really old, uh, man, old woman, grandfather, grandmother. Uh, they've got, uh, a bunch of llamas. Um, they're in this desolate, um, you know, kind of, dried up wasteland highland. yeah the highland yeah um and they're living their life but their life is dying out literally dying out and uh, their grandson comes and says you got to move to the city i'll get you water blah 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 and you know kind of goes from there beautifully shot um it's a little slow but you know it is one of those films that that um does kind of grab your attention and talks about climate change in a way that's not too overbearing although it's slightly overbearing i mean you kind of you know Anyway, um, yeah, they're all saying like, I guess we have to move because yeah. there's no water. Uh, now that film was only like 85, 86 minutes. Yeah. Uh, uh, the territory yeah. kind of is the same thing. Yeah. This is a, a movie about uh, a Brazilian indigenous tribe that's living in the Amazon and is protecting its indigenous land from people who are kind of just coming in and encroaching and saying, well, I'm going to put my farm right here. Let's clear and burn, burn away this forest. And then I'll be here. And then of course the government's doing nothing about it because the government needs to feed people. And that's, that's how they're doing it through such farmers. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That was one of the movies I skipped through. I, I was not as enchanted. It felt very kind of obvious and on the nose, lots of drone shots of uh, deforestation you know, pity the, you know, the indigenous, you know, loss of land and life and, you know, the way of life. And I was like, I get it. I get it. You know, it's, I don't want to sound like Bolsonaro's government, but, you know, there's part of me that's like, yeah, no, I, this is awful. I get it. It, it didn't really, yeah, it didn't really, it, you know, even at 86 minutes, it was too long. You know me. what really but, caught me about you know, that film? Nat Geo picked it up, right? It won the audience award. So clearly people love it. So don't listen to me. Um, you know, what uh, caught me about that film was that they eventually got to a point where they were using technology because you always think of indigenous people like living in huts and not. No, I mean, these people, the, these indigenous, uh, this indigenous tribe have a 19, 20 year old leader who uh, said, you know what, give me the cameras and we're going to go 
and film what's happening here and show the world what's happening here because that's the only way they're going to pay attention. And it actually kind of worked a little yeah, bit. Yeah, kind of worked a little bit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's the problem. it's a macro problem. We're looking at a micro, you know, kind of account of a macro problem. And I feel bad for them, but there are only like 60 of them left. And um, I'm like, Sadly. good luck, guys. You know. And also, it's like saving them is not going to save the Amazon. It's such a, like, by multiples larger problem than just them. So uh, it seemed to me one of these kind of very liberal bleeding heart takes on uh, a very serious problem that um, doesn't have any easy solutions, but, you know, wants to ennoble those who are, who are uh, kind of dying out. And I'm like, I get it. I don't know. It, it just didn't seem that sophisticated or nuanced. Yeah, you know, what's interesting to me is I work in Brazil a lot. And, uh, you know, you ask the, uh, the Brazilian people I work with, they know very little about the indigenous people other than, yeah, they live in the Amazon and they, they want their land or something. I don't know. Something's going on up there. So to actually see it from that standpoint was actually fascinating. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now, did you see, uh, well, I, the documentary that won the, well, you, you talked about the exiles, but all that breathes because talk about a, What's interesting about the territory and all the breeds is they had these very close-up shots of life yeah. of yeah. all kinds. That actually appealed to me a lot more, and it was, it was a, lot more, um, a lot more effective. I, what is it in Delhi? And, um, yeah. you know, it's the population, the overpopulation, the overpollution, and these birds, kites, I guess they're called. Uh, it's a breed of bird, isn't it? They kept calling Correct. kites. Um, first of all, beautifully, beautifully shot. It's much more like Utama. Uh, from that point of view, the, the filmmakers really found a way to shoot the birds and the, um, the people and the urban environment in a way that was incredibly arresting and, and actually oddly beautiful also in its despair. But um, these uh, group of guys uh, love saving the kites as they die. They literally fall from the sky because they're dying and they bring them back to life. Um, it's very moving, very poignant, beautifully done, beautifully shot. That won the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize too, right? For documentary. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were no, films like, uh, okay, well, so then, you know, we, I mean, certainly what were your favorites of the, well, why don't we talk about your favorites of the festival? And then we'll talk about some of the marketing of these, these movies that got picked up. What were your favorites uh, at this year's uh, festival? I mean, I think, uh, if I could break them into different categories, you know, I think the, the filmmaking, they're talking about the black experience, uh, was very strong this year. It usually is, but you're definitely feeling more of the Jordan Peele, um, kind of influence on, uh, a lot of filmmakers and filmmaking, you know, Alice, for example, which I didn't think was very successful. It's kind of a mashup of 12 years of slave and, uh, like a Pam Greer black exploitation movie, you know, but was a little overwrought and kind of weirdly paced. And the filmmaking was that strong master. I thought was really great that Amazon uh, is going to release that. And that's about basically being woke on a college campus and uh, also being black on a campus that virtue signals and wants to seem woke, but is like suffocatingly white and is entrenched in terms of its white privilege. And that was kind of fascinating and, and done in a very kind of paranoid, supernatural way. Um, Emergency was really good too. I don't know if you saw that. Um, I did, but that's yes. a sort this of teen the comedy. The, uh, you know, and um, I mean, the way I described it to my, to my wife was to say, you know, this is a college uh, comedy about a bunch of guys who want to, you know, visit all seven frats uh, in one night and go on this party binge. And then a drunk girl they find unconscious in their, in their room. Uh, and, uh, but the twist here is the two guys are black and the w girl is white. And they honestly don't know what to do. And it's a very good 
kind of question and an awful dilemma. If they call 911, if they call the cops, they're going to be, you know, implicated. They didn't do anything wrong. Everybody's going to assume the worst. And it just gets more and more out of control. And it's both incredibly hilarious and also very harrowing. And it's a real hat trick, uh, but done very well. Also, we need to talk about Cosby, this four-hour documentary that W. Kamau Bell, um, they played at Sundance in its entirety. Uh, Showtime is showing, um, I think, every week for an hour. There are four episodes. But that is a fascinating indictment. And, um, and, and frankly, a timeline. You know, it's an excavation of Cosby's history, legacy, and crimes, um, and is, is really important to watch. Um, certainly there was the Kanye West documentary, kind of the same thing that's going to be on Netflix. Um, you talked about Jordan Peele, uh, Anna Diop, who was in Us, was in Nanny. The, she stars in Nanny, the, the film that won the festival. Did you see this film, Nanny? I did see Nanny. I was very underwhelmed. And I saw it after um, it won the award. Uh, so I watched it over the weekend. I thought it was beautifully shot. I thought the, uh, the filmmaking, the genre inflections, supernatural aspects of it. And her performance, really great, but I found the white characters very paper thin and kind of silly. I found the storytelling actually really rocky. Uh, I was underwhelmed, so I'm surprised that that won the top prize for dramatic. You know, the, and there are themes. You're right. The, the, the woke experience, so to speak, was kind of a, a theme that, that ran through the festival. Climate change, another one we talked about. But then there was also incredibly timely the whole ukraine russia thing the klondike uh which it was a did you see klondike i didn't i didn't see klondike it's it's a fascinating film beautifully shot i mean and i'm by beautifully shot i mean the way it's framed and the way they the long long takes three characters in it maybe four or five shot in it takes place in 2014 in the eastern region of ukraine as the war starts and the husband and wife must figure out, do we leave? Do we stay? The wife wants to stay. The husband kind of wants to do both. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Then there's a house made of splinters about a, a shelter for neglected children in eastern Ukraine, wow. uh, which is also quite good. I, I, I take it you didn't uh, see either of these, these films. I mean, there are 83 movies. I saw half of them, and even that wasn't enough. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad that we're talking about it, though, because I think, you know, we overlap in a very complimentary way. Well, well, there is a lot of overlap. I don't know that you would want to program necessarily, although I guess you could. You could program um, Klondike with uh, the, uh, a house made of splinters. You could program the territory with all that breathes. But, you know, it's kind of a bleak, uh, you know, those are two climate change movies, so to speak. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, the world's going to hell. I mean, lots of themes, though, lots of themes running through this festival. You, you talk. Yeah, about I mean, there's some evergreen themes. I feel like there's always going to be progressive black values uh, represented in um, movies at Sundance. Uh, certainly has been a very strong, um, you know, showing for years. Uh, same for political documentaries, liberal uh, political documentaries. A lot of climate change stories are becoming more uh, familiar. And but, you know, one trend I really do like a lot. Um, is the fact that Sundance uh, really enforced gender parity in terms of directors, women directors, and um, getting more of a voice and, and more of a seat at the table. Um, and I, I think it's really been reflected in um, a lot of films that have really strong female roles or really interesting female characters. Um, some are amazing. Others are just a little off and like, I don't know, I don't think succeed as, as much as they might want to have. I'm thinking specifically of Sharp Stick, Lena Dunham's new movie, which I felt was a real stumble out of the gate. Um, she's a lot sharper, so to speak, 
as a storyteller and as a uh, someone who writes characters than this film. Did you see this? I did not see Sharpstick because I just thought, well, somebody's going to pick this up. I don't need to see it here. I mean, look, uh, I'll describe it in this weird, pithy way. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like a, an off-brand uh, suburban uh, mix of like suburban version of like a Lars von Trier movie mixed with a John Cameron Mitchell movie, if you can imagine that. Okay, that is... But like off-brand, you know, like... <laughs> what? Lars version. <laughs> yeah. I specifically, it's like Breaking the Waves crossed with Short Bus. You're just like, oh, wow. what are you okay. doing? Like, this is dumb. Basically, it stars a, 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 a babysitter who's 26, but had an emergency hysterectomy when she was 15. And is more or less, I guess, arrested in her, certainly her sexual development, because she's a virgin, and uh, maybe in her emotional development. She's got a single mom who's Jennifer Jason Lee, and she has a sister who's um, mixed race, because I guess the mom had different fathers for their kids. There are no fathers around. It's just these women. And um, they have a very blasé sense of... Um, sexuality and relationships but uh also not any kind of emotional considered committed relationships um and so this babysitter character um ends up having an affair with the father of the kid that she's uh babysitting and that's how she loses her virginity and then suddenly she has this insatiable appetite to learn uh about sex as much as possible because he turns around to pornography and then she literally does this sort of vision board of all the different sex that she wants to have from A to Z, you know, um, A being like, I forget what A was, but B was Bukake and like Z is like, I don't know, Zootropics, some, I don't like, it's just like what nobody makes a list. Like this is so dumb. Like nobody does this. Nobody's this like innocent and naive. And just invites men into her home to like do this. And, and how does it even work logistically? It's so dumb. And I, I get it. I like, I'm all for movies that are metaphors or fairy tales. And maybe she was going for more of a mythic vibe, but it's just dumb. It, well, you speaking so of angry. Anyway, you so, know, and, and, and let me, let me, I rambled on that. I didn't mean to vent, but Palm Trees and Power Lines, on the other hand, is an amazing film. I don't know if you saw it, but I, uh, I did see it. And that's exactly where I was headed because, you know, incredible. young girls and sexuality, it's yes. almost hard to watch this movie. It's incredible. And it, the way that it um, articulates and is empathetic to a young female sexuality um, that is so uh, believable and, and, and um, devastating as well. And she has that same sort of vibe at home. Like the mom is a single mom who has all these different men coming and going and there's just no communication and there's no relationship there that of any integrity. And she's just completely manipulated uh, by this man. And the way it ends, especially, I'm just like, what? And I don't yes. think a male director would necessarily have made that jump or it might've done it in a more kind of icky way. Not that it isn't icky anyway, but it, it becomes so much more tragic in the way that this filmmaker makes it. I forget her name, Jamie something or other, but she did a knockout film. Amy Dack is the, is the filmmaker. Uh -huh. uh, Audrey uh, Finley is the screenwriter, and it is about a 17-year-old a girl who gets into a relationship with a, like, 31, I think 31 or 34-year-old. 34, yeah. 34-year-old 34 man. Age, literally, she's 17, he's 34. 
And, uh, and it's, you know, what happens, I won't give away any twists, but, uh, it is hard to watch if you, I mean, in that regard, and you're right, the ending is definitely, you know, wow. I mean, just, I honestly, I honestly thought that film would wind up winning because it's just so powerful. And, and, uh, I, I don't know if the film got picked up or not, you know, certainly one that did was 892. I just got a, an email saying that Bleecker Street has picked up 892. Oh, is that right? Wow. Which is another film that was in dramatic competition starring John Boyega. I think this is his best role ever. This I missed. I mean, so tell me about it. This is a film where he plays, uh, a, a vet who obviously went to, I think it was Iraq, uh, and he is down on his luck. He's got a daughter who he keeps calling and a wife that he keeps, you know, he's obviously he's having some emotional and mental struggles. Uh, The wife keeps asking, are you taking your pills? And he decides uh, he wants the money that the Veterans Affairs, uh, you know, agency owes him and stole from him because he was trying to go to school. And I guess he didn't pay the tuition. You know, one thing leads to another. He goes to a bank to try and get the money back. Well, It becomes a holdup and it's just, and it's, so it's set inside the bank mostly. And then of course, uh, Michael Williams, Michael K. Williams comes and he's the hostage negotiator. Uh, it's his last film role and it's very powerful. I thought it was a good movie. Interesting. That's great to hear. You know, and it's interesting too. Did you see, um, Emily, the criminal? I did see Emily, the criminal kind of, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. These desperate people pushed into, a life of crime because of their situations. Right. Not that, and that it sounds like John Boyega wasn't necessarily committing a crime or maybe he was just, he was committing a crime because yeah, he yeah. basically said, I have a, you know, I have a bomb and oh, okay. I'm going to blow and I'm a, you know, munitions expert. So I'm going to blow the place up. If uh, you don't give me my $892 or something. No, I don't know whether it was $892, but it was like, you know, something ridiculously small, like $800. Uh, you know, but yeah, Emily, the criminal, what did you think of Emily, the criminal this I is liked a, a it. movie starring Aubrey Plaza? Yeah. I mean, I, I love it when a uh, character, when, when, yeah, I guess character actors, Aubrey Plaza is really known for parks and rec and also playing like the crazy, angry girlfriend, you know, who could snap at any moment, but does it in a really funny way. Um, and that works when you're young and in your twenties and she's getting older and I think it, it, it actually speaks well of her that she's looking for challenging roles that can pivot off of her shtick into a way that, that feels real and uh, believable and also stretches her as an actor, you know, and gets to show her acting chops. I think with this, you know, she's playing a desperate character who needs to be convincingly angry enough to be able to pull off the stuff that she does and her about faces. You know, when she's put in a sticky situation and you feel like she's going to throw in the towel and then she kind of steals herself and turns it around, I think works so well and very convincingly because of the baggage she brings to it from her kind of comedic shtick. But this is a very straight role. It almost felt like a Jacques Odiard film. It felt like Read My Lips or The Beat That uh, My Heart Skipped, if you remember those French films from like 20 years ago. There's, it's, it's like it's got a great kind of texture and vibe. It's a great world. Um, you know, my daughter. She's, she's really good. 
my daughter also watched this movie with me, uh, my, my youngest daughter, and she she felt cha-cha real smooth that the main character that Cooper Rafe plays, the, the writer, director, was like, nobody's like that. Nobody's that charming. And so like he's like he's like almost unreal. And then she she saw me flipping through the, you know, because there's a an app that's on the television that you can kind of go and uh, pick the movie that you're going to watch. And she said, oh, is that the person from Parks and Rec? Oh, I want to see that one. So we watched it and she's like... This this movie, I think it was because she didn't play the type. Aubrey Plaza didn't play uh, the type. She was like, "What? I, this person keeps." And I think w- what what frustrated her about this movie was that she kept the main character kept making the wrong decisions. She just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper yeah. into you know she decides to do an illegal you know kind of bec- do this crime and then it kind of spiral. And I thought and I said to her. And welcome to dramatic storytelling. Yeah, 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 exactly. You got to amp up the stakes. And, and it's not just dramatic. I mean, this is like a, I mean, it's a life of crime. It's a crime movie, right? It's a crime thriller. And so, of course, it's she's going to get deeper and deeper. It, you know, it definitely follows those kind of genre beats. And we were talking about this too in terms of genre beats. Like, there, there definitely, there was no lack of horror movies that played at midnight, but there were a lot of, dramatic movies that used horror and the supernatural in ways to tell their story. Like You Won't Be Alone, that film that Focus Features is going to release. The What is it, Romanian or the Eastern European? Uh, Macedonian, Moldovan? Yeah, about some witch. And the way that they, I mean, it kind of recreates, it redefines the mythology of what it is to be a witch. It makes it almost like a vampire, but also um, you can shapeshift, you can enter other people's bodies and, and kind of um possess them um but that very much is this i mean it's almost like terrence malick does like an ari aster movie right you know what i mean Did that whole thing it? i i saw it and uh I, as i was watching i thought oh my god this is one i honestly like halfway through i was like where is this going yeah. it's just it's exhausting it's just, i said if i actually thought of you while i was watching that i thought Oh my gosh! If if I was sitting next to Stephen as we watched this movie in say Cannes, he would tap me halfway through and go, "You want to go to La Pizza?" Because because <laughs> well. even though it starts off and you see the witch at the very beginning, and it's a so it's not giving anything away. That she looks like Freddy Krueger because she was right, in a, and you in just a go, bonfire. You're like, "What's Freddy what? Krueger doing there?" What is going on? Like, and then it just it becomes this lyrical folk tale, and you're like, "Where is this going?" Yeah, like, it doesn't. Yeah. It's like Freddy Krueger in a lyrical folktale. It's a really unique film. I mean, I, I admire it more than I enjoyed it. Let's put it that way. That is absolutely correct. I said, this right. is, as I was watching, I thought, I will never see this movie again, but it's not a bad movie. Yeah, a very forgettable title. You won't be alone. What does that even mean? I don't even, you know, I mean, I know what it means, but you know what I'm saying. Like, it's just, it's not a, it's not a catchy, it's not Emily the Criminal, you know, no, no. or Duel. Did you see Duel? I love Duel. That was really fun. I did. Um, and uh, it's, it's a film that is uh, basically a woman gets a terminal diagnosis uh, where she's told, look, you have this rare thing. You have a 2% chance maybe of maybe surviving. It's not going to happen. Everybody dies from this 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 condition. Uh, so she goes and gets a, a clone made of her so that her boyfriend, who she loves dearly, and her mother uh, won't have to go through a loss. Uh, and, you know, then... Uh, I, I don't know. It, 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 there's a twist. Do I do I give the twist away or? Well, yeah. I mean, there is, you know, sci-fi, right? Sci-fi social satire where, you know, uh, you can't you can't have two. Um, you can't 
your clone can't live in a world where you are still alive. And yeah, because of twists in the stories, basically she ends up having to have a duel with her duel. That's, you know, the pun in the name. And so she has to fight to the death. She has to fight herself to the death. I, it kind of remind me of a Yorgos Lanthimos film, you know, like this. Oh is my gosh. Like killing I a honestly, sacred deer kind of vibe. If you had told me that this was actually made by, uh, by Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, I would have said, okay, yeah, I buy that. Yeah. That, that, that's, yeah. that's, that's happened. Absolutely. But it's really fun. The guy who made it made the art of self-defense. So clearly he's really into self-defense classes because she goes into combat training. I, it's very deadpan to the point where she almost seems autistic. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just thought it was really fun and really funny. And a, and a, great, a great female role and also a great uh, movie about uh, obligations and emotions and connections with your family and your loved ones and identity, you know? And how, uh, you know, I love the end. The end is such a great sort of twist where you're just kind of like trapped in the decisions you've made. You know what I mean? Uh, yes. Without saying uh, more than that. I was surprised I didn't get a little bit more. Um, yeah, me too. Buzz. Um, it was picked up, you know, so, so a lot of these films were picked up. Yeah. Uh, but I noticed, okay, there's the, the, it seems like Apple is going to, at least for the foreseeable future, you know, maybe the next year or two, come in and buy something for way too much money, right. like cha-cha real smooth. I mean, what, they, last year they bought Klon, uh, Klondike, I almost said, last Coda. year they bought Coda, yeah. uh, and then decided to release it barely in uh, movie theaters. Well, I think, look, Cooper Rafe is 24, and he just got a $15 million deal with Apple. I think Apple wants to go in the, the Cooper Rafe business. He's a young guy. He's clearly, clearly talented and a multi-hyphenate. And I think maybe I could see them overspending in order so that they can get a TV show out of that guy. They get a limited series. They can get other movies. You know, I think they just want to be in the kind of business of him. You know, Coda, I think, was an overspend. And Coda won't make its money back, although it is kind of, you know, going the distance. uh, Right. And and this is is potentially we'll find out in a few weeks. Right. When the Oscars come out. Yeah, I mean, I, I when I saw that movie, I, last Coda, I said, "Wow, this somebody needs to pick this up and give it an an awards campaign because it's phenomenal." Uh, there's been some talk about Apple having picked that up as a way to appease the deaf community because there's been a lot of pushback against Apple and accessibility, oh. uh, you know, from from a hardware tech perspective. But uh, y- you know, certainly, you you mentioned the the horror aspect movies like watcher and did you see watcher i did not watch watcher although i heard good things right didn't it just get picked up or something yeah it was picked up by ifc midnight and shutter so i don't know uh, that, that means maybe you'll be working on this movie so you might get well, to see it after all. yeah yeah well the one i was really excited about was uh wait what was the other one that that oh yeah no shutter picked up speak no evil early in the festival and i caught up with that finally and good lord that is a hard movie to watch that is a great horror movie did you see this i'm not it's like a, a big danish film fan. yeah no this one's good <laughs> it's great <laughs> it's really twisted it's about this uh, danish family that meets a dutch family and then they spend a weekend over at the dutch family's house and shit gets weird and it's really good especially if like as i think it's good for people who are fathers to watch this movie fathers and mothers people who are parents of little kids um, because there's a lot of like weird dynamics 
that way. And also like how you meet the friends of your friends kit, you know, like your friend will, I mean, sorry, how you will meet the parents of your kids' friends. Correct. Yes. And, and start to have some sort of friendly relationship with them. Um, But then there's, different ways of child rearing and also just different customs. And if they come from a different culture, there's a lot of uh, weirdness that is potentially going to happen. And this movie really leans into it in a very dark way. And then it, it ends in a really, really devastating way. So wow, big thumbs up on that and pure horror. I mean, pure horror all the way through. It's not just using some horror tropes here and there, but uh, it is really leaning into it. It's really fun. Well, Shudder also picked up Resurrection with IFC Films. Uh, oh, right. Resurrection. I was not crazy about that movie. I thought it was kind of silly, ultimately. Great performances from by Tim Rebecca Roth Hall. and uh, Rebecca Hall. Yeah, the two of them are dynamite. But I just, I, once I realized what it was doing about halfway through, I was like, this is silly. I'm not buying this anymore. Let did me you? ask you, speaking of performances, did you see a movie that was picked up by Searchlight? And unfortunately, Searchlight which formerly Fox Searchlight, part of Disney now, uh, it, it, they seem to be the Hulu, straight to Hulu uh, company yeah. at this point. Interesting. Uh, they picked up uh, Sophie Hyde's film, uh, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, starring yeah. a- Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormick. It's a two-hander. It could have been a play, easily could have been a play. Takes yeah. place in a hotel room. Uh, and this is about a a, a widow uh, of a certain age who wants to basically... Who's Emma Thompson, right? Emma Thompson, yes. Uh, who wants to basically... She hires a young sex worker. Hires a gigolo, wants to have an orgasm. And so you're like, as soon as she says that, you're like, okay, there's going to be a scene where she finally does. And of course, that happens. There, I, I, found it, I found it very stifling, a little claustrophobic, a little stagey a little preachy. Um, I was not a huge fan of it, but I can see why people are responding to it. Uh, people will call Emma Thompson's performance brave because she shows some skin. Um, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't mean to be trite because despite that, it is actually very affecting and it is kind of a brave performance. And you don't see a woman, a 60-year-old woman, um, showing that much skin or talking that honestly about uh, their own pleasure and sexuality and being attracted to people and having regrets. And I don't know, I, 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 I did find it actually quite uh, a lovely film, but I just, I wasn't really that into it because I was so bothered by all the other contrivances. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I saw that film and I said, look, you want to get um, older audiences back into movie theaters and especially women back into movie theaters take that movie and release it theatrically. And of course, Hulu buys it, well, Searchlight buys it three days later and, and sends it straight to Hulu. Is it going to go straight to Hulu or is it going to do? Exclusively, exclusively on Hulu. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Which, okay. Uh, now, okay. One thing I love to do with you after any of these festivals is talk about, and you actually- Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Before, before you get to that point, can I just insert, since we're talking about older- uh, romances and things. Um, I thought a love song was a lot more compelling. I don't know if you saw that. I did see that. Dale Dickey and um, Wes Study um, as two people in their early 60s, both of them widowed, um, former childhood friends or classmates who had crushes on each other, meet up later in life at a campsite for a one-night stand, and I, it just was 
and very short. It was like a short story, you know, 75, 80 minutes long, um, beautifully done and very touching and not overacted, beautifully acted, not, you know, very under, uh, I don't want to say underwritten. It was beautifully written and it was understated. Um, so I, I really love that. I thought um, the remake of Ikiru, the Kurosawa film Ikiru, which is Loving with Bill Nye. No, no, um, Living, I believe it is. No, that's what I'm saying. It's a remake of Akiru, uh, which is Kurosawa's oh, movie, okay. and it was remade as Living, to your, like you're saying, uh, with Bill Nye as a uh, terminally ill man uh, who late in life decides to try to find some meaning in what otherwise was a rank and file, uh, you know, kind of bureaucrat. Um, that has nothing to do with sex, but <laughs> it, is, it is really lovely. And it's, it's these stories about second chances, about finding meaning later in life and about connecting with other people later in life. It, it was really lovely. It was, it was wonderful. Well, and uh, that film got picked up by Sony Picture Classics. That's right. And I believe uh, Brian and Charles, another uh, film about, uh, you know, takes set in the UK, was picked up by Focus Features. Uh, what is, I mean, you, when you take a step back, Sundance, Cannes, these are all, well, Cannes is a market outright. It, they kind of, there's the market that runs in parallel with it. Sundance became a market just because it's a lot of un, you know, a, a lot of films without distributors. What, how do you market any of these movies? Uh, Brian and Charles or Living or, I mean, what do you think the most marketable films are and how would you do it? I guess that's my question. I think the ones that uh, were bought for a lot of money are the most marketable movies. I mean, Cha-Cha Real Smooth is very marketable. I Am I Okay is very marketable. Uh, Good Luck to Leave Grandy is very, uh, very marketable. Fox Searchlight also picked up, or actually they brought to the festival, um, uh, Fresh. Do you see Fresh? Yes, I did. I kind of yeah. liked Fresh. Which is like a horror satire, right? Um, yes. And, oh, without a doubt, yes. And with a uh, female uh, director and writer and all that. Um, and it's a really uh, tongue-in-cheek is a phrase lots of people are going to use with this because it's about a cannibal who eats women but keeps them alive so that the, the, the meat is fresh. And so cuts off you know, limb by limb and then sells it to like rich men who eat their flesh. Um, that's very marketable. I mean, and that's why Fox Searchlight picks it up. It's these other, you know, and I think the ones that we talked about, like the climate change stuff, you sell as climate change stuff. The political docs, you sell as political docs. Uh, Navali is going to be on HBO. Um, HBO brought it, you know, to the festival. Um, you always look for the genre element and then um, see if that can be the way that you sell it. Um, and I say, see if that's the way you can sell it. You don't want to necessarily hoodwink people into seeing something that is not going to be like Emily, the criminal is a genre movie about a uh, life of crime and you sell it as a, as a crime thriller, you know, um, that's not, not, uh, that's not too much of a, uh, a, uh, too much of a, a disingenuous way to sell that movie. Sharp stick, I think might be a weird one to sell cause it's a weird movie. I don't think it necessarily works either. Um, but palm trees and power lines you sell, I think that might be a tough sell. It's a, you know, I think you and I both agree it was one of the strongest films of the festival, but, um, I think, uh, it's a very serious look at predatory, um, uh, basically predatory men and relationships. She's 17, but it's still statutory rape. And, uh, I think that's an uncomfortable, um, thing for people to watch. So I think... I could see that being framed uh, by the 
reviews and by any prestige that it could pick up at other festivals. And, um, you know, but that I think might be a, a difficult sell just because of the subject matter, you know. Do, do you think that, uh, you know, it's, it seemed to me that there were, I don't want to say slim pickings, but it didn't seem to me that there was, uh, I don't know, they, all of these films were made during a time, uh, during COVID, basically. And it seemed like fewer films were made, so therefore the festival had fewer films to programs, and this is what they had, to the oh. point where some of these films are going to Berlin and going to be in Berlin. Uh, Call Jane is uh, a, a film about uh, uh, the Jane Collective in Chicago during the 1960s and 70s uh, that helped women get safe abortions. That's going to Berlin. Klondike is in Berlin. Uh, it seems like, you know, maybe this year they didn't have as many films to choose from. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, I think uh, it sure felt like there were a lot of movies to watch. Um, and the ones that were made don't seem to show any adverse effects of the COVID regulations that each of them might have had to follow. I think living, I think I was, I accidentally ended up watching the credits to that. It wasn't kind of, it was just in the back, in the background. And I noticed that there were all these kind of COVID people listed in the end credits. Um, So yeah, I think it's now just another line item and people have gotten normalized to it uh, in terms of the protection uh, I mentioned Living too because it's a period piece. It was beautifully shot, a lot of costumes um, set in the 1950s in, in England. Um, so multiple locations, um, beautiful set pieces. It, none of it seemed to have been impacted by COVID, although clearly there were you know big crowd scenes and this and that, um, lots of people. It wasn't like Good Luck to You, Little Grandy, which seems like, yeah, that's the kind of movie you make during COVID because it's two people in a hotel room, you know? But yeah, right. no, some other movies with some serious production value seem to have been made without any problems. So, um, no, I don't know. I, I don't know the numbers. I don't know what was, uh, w- you know, how many films applied and how many, I mean, we certainly know how many were accepted, but I, I, I don't think it was too poorly impacted. You know, I just well, don't do think you, there do are any major, major films that came out of this, but that's also Sundance. Sundance is notoriously a discovery festival. They've gotten a little bit better with, um, spotlighting filmmakers who are a little more established and actually showing some some really great 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 works that will stand the test of time but usually sundance for decades is known more for a discovery festival where you see promising talent and you know interesting movies you know what i mean <laughs> so i guess yeah. i guess my 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 bar is lowered i don't necessarily compare it to berlin or Cannes or toronto in the same way um, well, and I look at, uh, you know, Sundance and that was, this was a festival where in 2010, I saw in one night, Winter's Bone at eight o'clock, walked out of the theater, got in line for Blue Valentine at 10 o'clock. I mean, talk about, now these were both films that got picked up, went on to serious awards, uh, you know, helped Jennifer Lawrence get discovered right. uh, and, and went on to serious, they were awards contenders uh, and yeah. I think we're even... And so I guess I look at that and go, well, you know, there were none of those theatrical, big theatrical pushes this, this year, lots of streaming. Yes, absolutely. But not necessarily, nobody's going there thinking I'm going to find a film like precious that I can put in a movie theater. Yeah. Nobody's thinking about movie theaters anymore. That's for sure. You know, I think that's kind of, um, it is what it is. I mean, it'll shake out the way it is. It's a, the larger question of whether there's an ecosystem for a theatrical release. And, um, you know, but I mean, to, look, to your point, I thought Winter's Bone was, was 
great, but you know, I don't think it's a classic. I haven't returned to it. I, I don't think Deborah Granick's really taken off in her career. I mean, definitely discovered, uh, you know, we all discovered Jennifer Lawrence in that film, but, um, and uh, Blue Valentine, I mean, Derek St. France has made a couple interesting movies, but, you know, again, I don't think these are major films. I think they're interesting discoveries that had a lot of good, um, good talent involved. And I think maybe more to your point, that was a time when movies of that stature could still have a significant theatrical release and have a significant place in the conversation of what movies came out that year. And so maybe that's more your question, which is, yes. can these smaller movies still find a place to be discussed? I don't think there's any way in the era of peak TV and you know billion-dollar streamers throwing tons of content into the uh, the ecosystem how anything breaks through and anything talks about gets talked about you know i mean you've got to be spider-man if you really want to have any chance at a sort of monocultural impact um but now it's just there's too much it's i i pity any movie that comes out in this environment it, it's really gonna get all the more reason why i think sundance is still vital because we're talking about these things that might not otherwise, you know, be talked about, let alone seen. Well, out of all of these movies, I mean, you've seen, you know, 38 movies. Which one of the movies that you've seen would you really go, you know what, I really hope I get to cut the trailer for that? Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, I think there are two things that I look for if I'm, if I would love to work on a campaign. It's, uh, I think, um, either a movie that really effectively uses genre or a movie that really effectively transcends genre, you know, and then suddenly becomes um, something you don't think it's going to be. Um, you know, I think with any trailer you look for, I mean, not to be crass, but, you know, trailer moments. There's a story that, whether it's apocryphal or not, I really want to believe that it happened, that Little Miss Sunshine um, was bought by Fox Searchlight back in whatever, 2004, 2003, whenever the hell it came out. Um, because the marketing team was at the Eccles watching. And uh, during the first 15 minutes of the movie, the marketing people were saying, you know, they, they said it three times. They were like, trailer moment. And then 10 minutes later, they're like, trailer moment. And then another 10 minutes, trailer moment. And then they're like, okay, three trailer moments. Let's buy this movie. And then they left the theater. So <laughs> they didn't even finish the film. <laughs> I don't know if they did or not. Maybe they did, but they knew they could sell it. Yeah. Um, so uh, what do I look for? Honestly, I just look. I you know this sounds corny, but I I look to my heart. I think to myself, gosh, what movie really really affected me, and what movie do I really want to um, help promote and get into the world? You know. So uh, I mean, we've already talked about palm trees and power lines. That would be a really uh, a huge challenge. Uh, and I think would be uh, kind of um, a great honor and responsibility to work on something like that. I think Duel and Emily the Criminal are the two that I just think were so much fun, and I, I think that would be a lot of fun to cut those trailers. And and that said, it would be it, I can't wait to see the marketing that they do with those because I think they're going to have a lot of fun uh, working on those kind of elements, those marketing elements. You know, um, so we'll see, we'll see. I don't know, who knows? Well. Well, and how can people find you if they if they have a film and they want a trailer cut? How can they find you? Oh well, the company is called Jump Cut, and our website is jumpcut.nyc, and you can see all the uh, all the stuff we do. 
Well, certainly I appreciate you taking the time to, to kind of go over Sundance with, with me. Usually we do this in person, actually. That's right. At the yeah. festival. Yeah, in real uh, time. But, but this year, uh, you know, I guess, again, everything was virtual. Well, uh, and I think that's, that's, that's what I miss. Like you and I do it. And then I think I'm sure you do it with a dozen other people, as do I. And that's the reason, you know, I, 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 I don't know if you missed it as much as I did. I certainly missed it terribly. Uh, that sort of in-person contact and, um, you know, it's, I think people dismiss it as buzz, but what it really is, is communication and contact and, and interconnectivity with uh, other people who are like-minded and, and that's a community, you know, that's a film community and, and uh, I, I miss it. Every passing uh, festival that isn't in person or is somehow compromised is uh, weakened, I think, for it. So hopefully we can get back to normal. Well, hopefully I'll see you in Cannes. Yeah, we'll see. Well, in the meantime, thank you for taking the time to join us. That's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So that's really like a wrap on uh, this special Sundance edition of Showbiz Sandbox. Now, remember, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes, on Google's podcast marketplace, the Microsoft marketplace, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us. You can rate and review us on any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so, and we appreciate it when you do. You can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Again, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. I can, some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.